Welcome to a Work in the West podcast, supported by funding from the Social Science and Humanities Research Council and organized by Dr. Sheila Campbell and Andrew Stevens at the University of Regina. This alt conference series interviews researchers, graduate students, and community members about the state of work and employment in Western Canada. Enjoy. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Sure. So I am the editor of Briarpatch Magazine. Briarpatch is a magazine that is based in Regina. We started back in 1971 when we started in Saskatoon as an anti-poverty publication that was distributed by and for people who are on welfare who wanted to discuss changes to social assistance. And since then, we've grown into a national magazine. We report on politics, social movements from a grassroots perspective. So prioritizing the voices of people who are directly affected, the voices of activists and organizers, and the voices of people who are often shut out of mainstream media. And so that's where I'm, I'm currently working. I'm living between Toronto and Regina right now, but Briarpatch has really deep roots in Treaty 4 territory uh, in Regina. Thank you so much for telling us about your background. You recently put together a special issue on prison abolition. What got you interested in creating this special issue? And did you face any barriers when you were doing that? Yeah, so the the idea for the prison abolition issue was brought to me by some people who are involved in a conference that was supposed to happen in Toronto in 2020. It was called the Abolition Convergence, and it was a convergence sort of put on by a journal called the Abolition Journal that works to end oppressive state structures like prisons, police, and borders. And in 2020, that conference was not able to go ahead because of COVID. But as part of that conference, there was a working group that had begun to do outreach to prisoners in prisons in the U.S. with the intention of of including their voices in in the conference and asking them, can you imagine a world without prisons? And when the conference was postponed, that working group kept doing outreach and they started looking for a place to publish those responses by prisoners. And it was kind of a pivotal time. It was not too long after the uprising in the summer of 2020 for Black liberation, where people were calling for police abolition, police accountability, defunding the police. And there was also kind of a heightened scrutiny and criticism of the entire penal system, which includes prisons. And so people were talking a lot about prison and police abolition and learning a lot very quickly. And so these organizers brought this idea to Briarpatch, asked Briarpatch if we would publish uh, the writing by prisoners in the U.S. that had started writing about imagining a world without prisons. So I was very excited about publishing that in Briarpatch. We put together an editorial collective that included me, some of the organizers from the working group that was now called the InReach Collective, and also organizers from a group called Freelance Free Peoples, which is a prairies-based abolitionist group that has was at the time doing a lot of fundraising for prisoners who had recently been released during COVID. And what else informed the creation of this of this issue? I think it came out of Briarpatch's own history of of 
publishing writing by prisoners. This is not something that mainstream media does very often. Mainstream media tends to not think of prisoners as uh, credible, even when they're speaking about their own experiences inside prisons because of the stigma around being criminalized. But we thought it was really important to hear from prisoners about what their lives looked like inside prison, what kind of injustices they were facing, and what their political visions were for a more just society. And so we added writing by prisoners in Canada. And so the entire prison abolition issue, which will be released in early September, so in just a couple of weeks, will feature writing and art exclusively by prisoners in Canada and in the U.S. talking about what it's been like to be in prison during COVID and before COVID as well, what it looks like to organize against prisons from the inside and try and hold prisons and correctional officers and prison administrators accountable as a prisoner, given that intense power dynamic. So we're very, very excited about this issue. And I'll talk also a little bit about when you ask why was I interested in creating this special issue? It's partially because a group of amazing organizers brought me a great idea, but also I can't talk about the, the issue without recognizing the debt that we owe to the history of the prison press, which is publications that are made by prisoners out of prisons. So in Canada, the history of the prison press sort of started in the 1950s out of prisons in Kingston, Ontario. And at that time, you know, during the height of the prison press in the mid 1900s, there were hundreds of different publications being made by prisoners, forced prisoners circulated between prisons, and also a huge readership of those publications outside of prisons. And it was a time when, in general, people in Canada and people in North America were really interested in prison reform. They were interested in using prisons more sparingly. They were interested in using prisons to rehabilitate people. And that mindset has really changed. And we've seen that happen in conjunction with the decline of prisoner publications. There's less readership of those publications, in part because there is a lot more censorship around what happens in prisons these days, but also because we now have this kind of lock them up and throw away the key mentality when it comes to prisoners. There's a lot more tough on crime rhetoric. We've seen the rise of neoliberalism that destroyed social safety nets and resorted to putting people into prisons instead of addressing the underlying social problems. So we're making this rooted from this, from this deep legacy of prisoners' own publications, but also at a very different time in the lifespan of, of prisons in, in North America. Thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. And next, I wanted to ask you, many prisoners work while uh, being incarcerated and struggle to find jobs once re released. What did you learn about prisoners' working conditions inside and outside prisons? Yeah, so we learned a lot. I think I consider myself someone who is, before creating this issue, was already quite critical of prisons and the way that they're run and the way that people are criminalized uh, and warehoused inside of them. But 
I learned so much more that is really hidden from public sight while I was making this issue and while we were corresponding with incarcerated people across North America. So a lot of prisoners wrote about the lack of educational opportunities in prison, feeling like prisons were not actually making any genuine attempt to rehabilitate people or prepare them well for a life on the outside, that in actuality, prisons were disconnecting them from their families, disconnecting them from being able to get a decent education, disconnecting them from any means of saving money or preparing themselves for their release from prison. A lot talked about a lack of resources with which to train themselves for jobs after prison. So really restricted access to technology and computers and the internet, censorship of any media that could be used for learning. A lot of them talked about the coercive nature of programs in prison. So, you know, people's parole, for example, will be tied to how they perform in certain prison programs. And so it gives people an incentive not to genuinely learn, but instead to say whatever they think needs to be said in order to get out of out of prison, which, you know, to be fair, I support that. I don't think that anyone should be in prison, but there's the programs a lot of prisoners wrote are, are just sort of a farce, like a, a box to be checked. And a lot of prisoners also wrote about unsafe working conditions when they were working in prison. So a lot of the time having a job inside prison is seen as a privilege afforded to prisoners who have who are considered to have good behavior or who are considered to have committed less heinous or less destructive crimes. Those prisoners work for a pittance, basically no money at all. And they often work in really unsafe working conditions. So we had prisoners writing about, you know, what it what it looked like to work in food service in the prisons and the totally unsafe, unhygienic conditions they were working in, the absolute lack of training that they had. So people don't really think of prisoners as as workers. And, you know, to some extent, they're not. A lot of prisoners are treated much more akin to slaves than they are to workers because they're paid effectively nothing. But but when you do actually start looking at the working conditions of, of people in prisons, it's quite appalling and not, not the kind of working conditions that we would tolerate anywhere else. And there's so little advocacy for workers in prison. There's so few avenues of genuine recourse for workers in prisons because there's no unions, there's no benefits, none of the things, none of the rights that workers outside of prisons have fought for and won with the help of labor unions. So I'm going to read a couple quotes from from some of the prisoners who wrote in the prison abolition issue about what work was like for them inside their prison. So the first quote is by, by someone named Tamina Hamid, who is incarcerated in the US. She was writing about the difference, the different ways that women and men are treated inside prisons. So she writes, women do not get nearly the same job opportunities that men do. I'm not made a priority for schooling of any type and I have to work twice as hard to get the privilege of a good job. What's a good job? Well, for women, there's not much maybe a maintenance job, or that's about it. 
I can barely get a job that will give me on-the-job training, which would let me earn a technical certificate while on a work assignment. I currently work as a bar screen where I rake trash in an open sewage system. Where is that sewage disposal training really going to take me? So you can see that from that quote, the jobs that people are allowed to have in prison are not good jobs that will set them up for success after prison, that will set them up for stability after prison. Another prisoner, Corey Cardinal, who was incarcerated in the Saskatoon Provincial Correctional Center, writes, very few inmates have paid jobs. Those who do are paid as little as $1 a day. Further cuts to these jobs, which were a small but important privilege, quote unquote, collapsed the small inmate economy used to support the inmate committee, our collective representative body. As workers, we are exploited, propping up the system that turns us into products for colonial gain. So prisoners have a very strong analysis of the fact that they're being deeply exploited while in prison and that those jobs are jobs where they're just, they're maintaining the own unjust, the conditions of their own unjust incarceration rather than jobs that will actually train them for success once outside of prisons. And we can see this in, in the way that wages have been cut to prisoners who work across the country. So for example, in 2017 in Saskatchewan, the working wages for provincial prisoners were cut from $3 a day to $1 a day to work an entire day and earn a single dollar. And to put it in context, at the time in 2017, phone calls were $2.50 per call in Saskatchewan prison. So a full day's work wouldn't even get a prisoner a phone call home to their family. So there are some really concerning working conditions inside prisons. You know, many, many workers are exploited, but when you start to look at the specific ways in which prisoners are exploited and the fact that often their only method of recourse is filing grievances and that there have been so many reports of grievances being lost, never reaching ombudspeople, ombudspeople saying that there's no evidence for prisoners' grievances, things like that, and prisoners being trapped within this very coercive, abusive power dynamic with their captors who they are appealing to for justice, it becomes a really concerning picture of the work conditions inside of prisons and also how prisoners are being trained and set up for life after prison. And it becomes very apparent that, you know, for a lot of the people in Saskatchewan who are criminalized, who are extremely disproportionately Indigenous people, especially Indigenous women these days, the government has no interest in preparing prisoners for a better life outside of prisons. They're interested in continuing the cycle of criminalization and incarcerating people who they don't want to actually provide meaningful assistance to and who are often an impediment to colonialism's accumulation of Indigenous land. 
Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Saima. I definitely learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners did too. And finally, I wanted to ask you, can you reflect on the Saskatchewan government's track record when it comes to the treatment of prisoners? Yeah, absolutely. So I've already mentioned a little bit about budget cuts in 2017 that reduced the working wages for provincial prisoners. The other trend that we've been seeing in the Saskatchewan government's treatment of prisoners and their their policies around prisons is this consistent pattern of privatization. This is something that one of the writers in the prison abolition issue, Corey Cardinal, wrote a lot about and spent a lot of the last few years doing advocacy around because he saw from the inside the deteriorating conditions inside of um, a Saskatchewan prison as that privatization was being carried out. So prisons in Canada are a little bit different from prisons in the U.S. We hear a lot about private prisons in the U.S. and I think a lot of people have a fairly clear understanding that that, you know, private prisons, that putting in a, a private company in charge of incarcerating people is ridiculous and reprehensible. But even though prisons in Canada are not wholly owned or operated by private companies, I think what people don't often know is that a lot of the services provided to prisoners inside prisons are can be and are increasingly being privatized and contracted out to private companies. So we've seen this happen a lot under the SAS party in Saskatchewan, and there's been a massive amount of backlash from prisoners who have been resisting through labor strikes and hunger strikes, things like that. So one example of this is is in 27 or sorry, 2015, the Saskatchewan government privatized food services inside Saskatchewan prisons. They signed an agreement with Compass Group Canada to provide meals in the province's prisons. So meal budgets got cut from an average of five to six dollars per person to three dollars and twenty-five cents. And the government said that there should be, or prisoners should expect, no measurable change to the quality or quantity of the food that they were receiving, but that is not what happened. And I would bet a lot of money that they knew that, you know, that would not actually play out in reality. So prisoners began reporting that they were being served raw eggs food with flies in it, frozen lunch meat. In 2016, a year later, prisoners started being report or started reporting that they were being forced to go up to 14 hours at a time without food between breakfast and dinner. And so prisoners started hunger striking to to protest this privatization. And another example of of this privatization is in 2010, the Saskatchewan government privatized the phone services in prisons. So prisoners can call their families or their lawyers or, you know, a company to to pay bills, things like that from prison. But in 2010, the Saskatchewan government contracted that out to a company from Texas called Telmate. And they did that mostly because they wanted to 
pay less, but also because they they wanted to surveil prisoners more intensely because they wanted to introduce a feature that would not allow for three-way calls to take place and to be able to flag calls that they thought were, you know, potentially dangerous or that prisoners were saying things that were not allowed or planning for activities that were not allowed. But what has happened is, is that tell me that company from Texas that the phone services have been privatized to currently makes over a million dollars every year off of phone calls from Saskatchewan inmates. So it's actually about $1.3 million on average. 90% of what prisoners pay for every phone call, that goes to Telmate. 10% of it goes to the Saskatchewan government. So by 2017, Telmate had made almost $9 million off of these phone calls, and the province received less than $1 million off of those calls. And phone calls cost $2.50 for 20 minutes, uh, and they hang up automatically if the three-way call detector detects any kind of clicking or it detects a third voice on the call, uh, which makes the, the call hang up and then the prisoner has to pay again to place another call. So it's it's an absolutely predatory system when these, these the most basic necessities that prisoners need, food and connection to their families and their legal counsel is being privatized is being you know sold out to private companies for a profit it's a massive human rights violation because there's an incentive for those companies to provide worse and worse service to prisoners to cut corners to save money in the interest of making a greater profit and you know it's it's not there's no not even any fiction of there being any kind of free market like Prisoners can't say, oh, Telmate charges me too much for a phone call, so I'm going to switch phone providers and go to Bell or Rogers. That's not an option. These companies are holding prisoners and their basic needs hostage. And the Saskatchewan government has allowed for these companies to, to do that. So it is a it's a pretty bleak picture. I know I've I've talked about a lot of a lot of really horrible conditions in in prisons but but prisoners have really been fighting back in very hopeful ways i i've spoken about how a lot of the time the the methods of recourse that prisoners have the methods for accountability and justice that they have are really deeply flawed because it means appealing to the same system that has decided to imprison them often you know justly or unjustly you know for example more than half of people in Saskatchewan's prisons are actually waiting for their trial, so they have not been proven guilty of what they're accused of. But, but people in prisons have been have been fighting back in in ways that try and sort of bypass some of those official channels when prisons begin to break their own rules, things like that. So during COVID, prisoners staged a number of hunger strikes in Saskatchewan. They were protesting the conditions that were allowed to lead to the spread, the rampant spread of COVID in prisons. And it was a coordinated effort among a number of different prisons. And throughout history, like whenever I talk about 
this instance of privatization or that instance of, of a wage cut to inmates' wages, those have always been met with prisoners taking direct action with hunger strikes or riots or revolts or labor strikes. So there's also, you know, we talk about the struggles, but we also talk about the the strong resistance to the dehumanization and the violence of, of prisons by prisoners. And that's what we were aiming to to give voice to with the prison abolition issue. We think it's, you know, it's not an issue that any other mainstream media publication in Canada would do, an issue that features exclusively writing and art by prisoners. But we think it's really, really very important to do because prisoners can tell us so much about what they're experiencing inside prison and how they're fighting back and what kind of world they hope that that resistance builds toward. The music in this podcast has been brought to you by McFay and the Deputies.